Hello and welcome to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Shelby King and for today's episode I've got a special guest um, and she's been on the podcast before so some of you may remember we have my colleague Whitney Wright. Hey, nice to be back on the podcast. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. It's definitely a pleasure to have you on. For those who may not be familiar with you, Whitney, can you just give us a little brief background on what you do and um, kind of what your role is here at Ezoic? Yeah, so I'm the creative marketing manager, uh, which means that pretty much anything that we put out, um, I have my eye on. Um, So a lot of that is the video and if we put something up on the website or make a PDF, I'm either working on them or people send them my way to look over before they're finalized. Uh, I do a little video and PDFs and Adobe and just a little bit of everything, um, like being on the podcast too. Right. And I hope a lot of our listeners are accustomed to Ezoic Explains and um, oh, yeah. for those, they might recognize you from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so today um, Tyler is a little bit busy. We're, we're starting a new webinar series and um, we've got that ramping up this week. So uh, we've got a few different topics today. The first one is from Search Engine Land and it's about a new feature for Google Snippets. So after a couple years of testing, um, Danny Sullivan from Google has said that the featured snippet to web page highlight feature has gone live for all HTML pages. So they've been testing this feature with AMP pages since December of 2018. So how it works is that when you click on a featured snippet, Google may anchor and or highlight the text on the web page that you saw in the featured snippet. So this happens automatically. There's no markups that you need from webmasters to enable this featured snippet. Um, If a browser doesn't support the underlying tech needed, or if the system can't confidently determine exactly within a page to direct a click, um, the clicking a featured snippet will take a user to the top of the web page. Um, so what's your take on this? You know, from a user experience and a publisher experience, I'm sure it's kind of very different things. Um, some people have pointed out that, you know, with this feature, searchers may skip down past ads. Um, or call to actions to kind of just jump directly to the relevant content. Um, But at the same time, it may be kind of providing a better experience to searchers because they get the information that they're looking for quicker. So do you have any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, I've I've been served this. Um, I feel like recently it I was like served a highlighted one Um, and I, I did like it because it did just get me directly the information that I was looking for. But I mean, yeah, on the other side, you do have publishers uh, that the rest of their content might be ignored, um, ads, especially at the top of the page, which are generally the more lucrative ads, uh, those won't be seen. Um, I guess it just depends on how much of the content a user is interested in. Um, I'd say usually when I'm clicking on a snippet, I want a specific answer. I'm not looking to read necessarily a whole article. Um, Otherwise, I look for um, different results. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's good for users um, and kind of not great for publishers. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't seen the highlighted text yet or the highlighted feature um, yet, mm-hmm. but I've definitely seen the um, 
where you click on it and it kind of just jumps to that portion of the page where that text is. As a user, I mean, I also, there's, it's pros and cons. I guess it just depends on what I want from the search. Sometimes I just want the answer, which a lot of times is in the snippet. So I just want to finish the snippet. But then there are other times where I want context. And so I don't want to be thrown halfway down the page. Yeah, definitely. It. I'm sure a lot of it plays into kind of the different, we've talked about the different modes that you're in when you're mm-hmm. going out and you're searching for content. So I mean, if you just wanted a direct answer, you weren't really going to search around and sift around on the right. page and different pages anyway. So that is a good point that you make. Yeah. Um, the next topic I've got is from What's New in Publishing, and it's titled What We Learned from Two Months of Hosting Webinars. So I know that this is kind of a more unusual or unconventional topic that we typically cover but I know a lot of publishers have been turning to webinars, especially during the pandemic, to engage with their audiences and also provide value to them. So I figured we could go through a few of the tips and see yeah. if we've got any comments on them. So the first tip is lengthy slide decks, even from high profile speakers, just don't work as well in the virtual world. So do you agree, disagree with this? I definitely agree with this. I think Um, even in person when someone's basically just reading their slide deck and like relying completely on the slide deck to get them through whatever they're um, presenting, I am bored. Whereas uh, I think the best speakers use it kind of as a note section uh, and then they keep you entertained with their, uh, what they're talking about. Um, So I think that this goes for the same online. I think even more so online, um, it's very easy to, get distracted and tune out because you're already on your computer. Uh, And so if you're just throwing up slide decks and clicking through them and just talking, I think that uh, is not going to hold people's attention very long. Um, I do like to see the speaker and I think Tyler's done some webinars where, which I've, I think that this is the good balance where like he has the slideshow up, but then in like the right hand corner, you can still see him talking. Um, And so it's kind of like you're at a live event where you have the person talking, you have the slide deck and um, yeah, you're just, you're able to see them talking. I think there is something valuable about seeing who's talking and who like, I don't know, it's kind of, it's a little bit more personal. You're a little bit more engaged. Yeah, definitely. There is something about, a virtual webinar conference where you do feel a little bit more easily distracted just because when you're in person and someone's doing a presentation, it could be considered rude if you're on your phone or Mm -hmm. not making eye contact or paying attention where people could see you. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, behind a screen, when especially when your camera's off, it could be pretty easy to just kind of go off and open another tab and get distracted there. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, The second tip is to resist large panels. So webinars eat up time more easily than physical events. So you should resist the urge to add lots of people to the conversation. So it's recommended that in addition to your host, have no more than two guests in any one session. So do you agree or do you feel like the more is the merrier? Uh, When I initially read this, I was like, how can a virtual event possibly take longer than a physical event? Um, just because there's all this, you know, in between and introduction and stuff, but uh, it makes sense because it's a way more interactive medium than in person. People are more scared in person or hesitant to ask questions, whereas you can hide behind your screen and ask questions in the chat bot. Um, So 
I, I think that this makes sense. It's also hard to keep track of people if there's just a bunch of voices. It's a lot easier to keep track of people when they're on stage or something. But um, it's hard to stay engaged when there's too many people talking at once and you have no idea what they look like and you're not used to that. Uh, I would say that it's probably is best because you do want to leave room for conversation with the audience as well. Uh, webinars are definitely different than presenting in person. And um, one of the bonuses of that is you're interacting more with your audience. I think that's a good segue into next. I'm going to combine the next two topics. So mm -hmm. it's keeping an eye on the chat box and using audience Q&A to involve more natural conversations. So I feel like those two are pretty much tied together. But yeah, how important do you feel like that is for webinars? I think that's um, important for webinars. Uh, kind of like I was saying, webinars do function differently than presentations in person. And one of those functionalities is being able to talk to the audience pretty um, abruptly and actually having a conversation with them. So I think that uh, instead of um, in person, you often have a Q&A at the end and you don't interrupt the speaker. Uh, whereas online, you get to actually interact with what's happening right then and there. So I think it, it's very important to take advantage of the chat box on the side um, and address questions as they actually come. But this also uh, gets into why you should have less people on your panel because it's going to take longer. If you're having a conversation with people on your panel and then also with the audience, it's going to eat up time. All right. So the last tip I just wanted to share is kind of going into the mentality of the webinar is a talk show, not a lecture. So mm -hmm. that one I just thought was really clever and kind of mm -hmm. just a good way to look at it. Yeah, I think um, similar sentiment to what we've both been saying is that a webinar is not it's not a substitute for a virtual, like it's not a substitute for an event. It's the best next best thing that you can do pretty much. Um, you can go to online lectures, but webinars are specifically supposed to be a two way street. Um, and so I think that this makes a lot of sense and I, I liked it as well. Yeah, that's definitely something to remember is that with webinars, it is two way street um, for a lot of those reasons that we mentioned. All right, so moving on to our last topic of the day, it's about how Nat Geo has adapted its Instagram feed. So National Geographic's main Instagram account at Nat Geo is the 11th most followed account on the platform. So they've got 137 million followers at the time that this article was published. So according to Nat Geo's director of Instagram, um, Josh Rabb, the biggest challenge of running an account of that size is perfecting the balance of pages makeup and making sure that all of the elements get an equal amount of attention. So despite joining the social media site in 2006 and having 14 years of data surrounding how well certain types of posts perform compared to others, Rob says that data does not ultimately play a significant role in determining what his team will post in any given day. So that seems a little bit kind of counterintuitive to what you may think. But um, he says that there is a danger in pretending that you know exactly what your followers want and how they will respond and engage with the content. And it's often hard to predict what will go viral. Rav says that there has to be a balance in what the content output is representing. So this means balancing what the company might be self-promoting, whether it's their print magazine or some sort of Disney content, which owns Nat Geo, um, how much sponsored and branded content is allowed in the mix, 
and their photographer's content as well. So all of these things need to be posted equally. So in order to stay one step ahead of Instagram's ever-changing algorithm, Rob says that the number of posts actually, the number of posts in one day actually toggles every few weeks. So he says that the algorithm is not stagnant and that for a few weeks they'll post eight posts in a day and then a few weeks later the number will drop down to four in a day. And so the goal is to maximize the percentage of impressions that they're getting. So as far as posting Instagram stories, the number has been closer to two to five stories per week. Um, So he says that those often involve video and they're harder to produce than a regular post, which is why they'll post less per week. So one thing that Nat Geo does not do is delete poor performing ads. So he said, if we wanted to play into the algorithm and what we thought people wanted, we would just post a lot of furry, cute animals with high saturation and contrast and call it a day. But that's only a small part of what they're trying to achieve. So it's not solely about earning the highest number of likes but the ultimate goal he says is to educate readers so he says um, we've been tricking people into learning since national geographic was founded in 1888 so i think there are a lot of takeaways from this article you know one of them being that you shouldn't always pretend like you know what your users are going to want or how they're going to respond and then changing your strategy and your posting to kind of keep up with the algorithm there's a lot of things going on here Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, I just like that quote at the end, tricking people into learning. Because, um, I mean, I definitely grew up with Nat Geo magazines in my house. And now, I guess, Instagram, you know, that's how people learn about Nat Geo. But um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that they said that they don't completely just rely on data. But I think it also makes sense, especially because if you've been doing this since 2006 and have 14 years of data, um, that data is helpful only for a little bit because so much changes on Instagram so fast, especially now, uh, not as much maybe when it first started, but that data is only, you know, it doesn't matter that you have 14 years of data. Uh, it's irrelevant in, you know, maybe a month or so even. Um, so I think that that makes sense. And I think that people can tell when you're being ingenuine. Um, so when you're posting things, just to get likes when you're posting things just to grab attention. Uh, I think that goes with the whole, uh, if we wanted people's likes, you know, we'd post very cute animals with high saturation. Um, there's definitely accounts that I have followed in the past that are basically that, where they make you feel good for a second, but they don't provide any depth. Um, and I ultimately end up not following them. Uh, and what Nat Geo I think is doing really well here is telling a story with their Instagram. Um, so. Uh, they, you know, they have captions that do more than just give a one-off of what the picture is. It's usually educational. Um, and they're actually engaging with their audience in that way. They're not just kind of giving them something to, to like, and then move on from them. They don't think about it anymore. And I think that's probably what a lot of people like about Nat Geo. It's the cute pictures, but it's also learning a lot from just a single post. As far as changing how many times you post per day, uh, I think that's actually pretty smart. In order to gather data, you you wouldn't know what's working and what's not working if you didn't change it up every once in a while. So if you post you know, five posts in a day and then a week later you do eight, um, you now have something to compare between the two, whether eight or five or in between works well. Um, So I think their strategy is super interesting, but I think it makes sense as well. What people can take from this is, one, I think 
being genuine, kind of like uh, we were talking about, was is just that people can tell when you're being ingenuine. Um, so I think posting things genuinely, not just posting things that'll get likes, uh, posting a variety of things, uh, I think keeps people attention and also gives you an opportunity to see what kinds of posts are doing better. Maybe, uh, you know, more posts about Disney are relevant during a certain time, especially if something's happening at Disney or um, maybe it is cute animals this week, but next week they want more information or within the day. And that way you're not just kind of bombarded by either a bunch of information, a bunch of ads or a bunch of cute animals. I think people like the variety. Yeah, definitely. I actually think that's all we've got going on for this episode. But is there anything you want to add in? Any Ezoic Explains you want to plug or anything? Right now, I am working on one for the core web vitals. So that will be out soon. It's going to accompany the blog. We just posted about that. But I will uh, just recorded that today. If you haven't heard of them, look them up. Google says they're important. um, And they're going to be even more important in the next six months. All right. Well, if that's all, then I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Um, you could leave a review. Those are like gold to us. If you have any questions or comments that you want to send our way, um, you can post those to publisherlabpodcast.com and we'll get those answered in future episodes. So thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Publisher Lab.